Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. What are the priorities for local lawmakers at the start of this year's legislative session? From inflation and spiking health care insurance costs, youch, to worker shortages and a looming waste crisis, there's plenty of hot topics likely to hit the floor before the session wraps in June. Today on Where We Live, we'll dig in with a roundtable of experts, including... Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on Connecticut Public Radio. Christine Stewart, editor-in-chief of CT News Junkie and resident boss lady. And Jonathan Wharton, professor of political science at Southern Connecticut State University, preppy professor himself, associate dean at the School of Graduate and Professional Studies there. What issues are most important where you live? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Good morning, Colin. Good morning, Frankie. Good morning, Christine and Jonathan. Morning, everyone. Is everybody awake today? There we go. There, there's, there's Christine. <laughs> Christine joins us. Maybe maybe from delay or or not maybe delay, but she's got a lot going on because she's actually on the scene right now at the state capitol. I am, and the building is getting more full by the moment. What's the mood like there? I mean, it's exciting. It's kind of, you know, I guess the first day, the opening session is kind of like, you know, the first day of school. Um, so it's kind of that energetic vibe that uh, anything is possible. Uh, and then we start heading into, I don't know, March, April, and everything dies. Uh, my, my favorite thing about being in the Capitol is always being greeted by like special interest group person X or Y. Like who's at the Capitol today? What's What's the big deal? Are there any protests, anything like that happening? There are, um, you know, a a bunch of nurses on the South Lawn who are calling for safe staffing. Um, So they say that the um, staff to patient ratio at hospitals and acute care settings uh, is not appropriate and uh, is putting their, um, you know, is is putting their patients in in jeopardy. Yeah, it's not all fun for the lawmakers, even though there is a, there is the great pop in circumstances. If you if you remember last year, if you're sitting in the chamber for Governor Lamont's State of the State address, you had last year the folks chanting and, and, and protesting against school mask mandates. That was happening outside. Today, as you said, we do have some, some nurses outside. That's And that's a quick thing I want to get to, Christine, before I bring everybody else in here. Do you understand whether or not we'll be prioritizing healthcare workers this year, or maybe it's more the the infrastructure of healthcare costs and things like that? What what are your thoughts there? Well, I mean, we have two things going on. We have, I mean, it seems to be this this confluence of. of Events that is happening. You know, we we have staffing shortages. Apparently, there's 89,000 nurses that have a license in Connecticut, but only 44,000 are actively practicing. So we do have staffing issues, but we also have 
the health insurance uh, issue. I mean, health insurance rates this year went up 13% um, for anyone who has a, a fully insured plan here in the state of Connecticut. And that includes the plans offered on the exchange, even though there's subsidies for those. So, I, I mean, you know, it's it's hitting both patients and, and the, the staff. And I feel like they need to address this. Um, they haven't addressed it. Um, and it's because the federal government seems to continue to step in and give out large amounts of money as if those amounts of money are going to continue to, to happen. Like they got a bunch of pandemic pay for, you know, for the hospitals during nursing. We got, you know, an increased subsidy for another three years for um, health insurance. So the federal government helps state lawmakers be complacent on a lot of these issues, but time is running out. Yeah, Colin, I I watched eight debates here. I was sitting there in person for all these debates that we had, and lawmakers got pretty in the weeds, I would say, on health care costs, Medicare, things like that. And I know Joe Courtney really eloquently can put it down uh, for for healthcare insurance costs and and things of that nature, but sometimes it can get too weedy. Could you can you help us out with what's happening here in in the landscape? Well, I don't pretend to be a genius about this, although I would really recommend, and I, I think it's still pretty much up to date, Elizabeth Rosenthal's amazing book American Sickness about our healthcare system. I, I think what it really comes down to is if you don't control costs. Uh, and even the the Affordable Care Act really doesn't even really address that. If you if you can't control healthcare costs and kind of standardize them, you're going to have this problem trickling out of the other at the other end of the pipe. And I think you're sort of seeing that. And then you know with the nurses, there's really kind of multiple problems here, including the fact that I mean those percentages that you gave out are kind of chilling. But it's also true that an awful lot of frontline nurses didn't want to be in the ER anymore. They got burned out, too many cases, not enough staffing. So ER, ICU, some of those places are less desirable. And nurses are thinking, no, I think I'll go over to the place where they do the colonoscopies and not have to deal with all this stuff. And why would you work uh, as a nurse and continue to do it when uh, my, my cousin's a nurse at Waterbury Hospital? And uh, as I understand it, you couldn't really take vacation or anything like that at, at certain times during the, the pandemic. So it's not exactly an easy proposition. No. And nurses are heroes. I mean, there's just no question about it. Absolutely. This. You know, they are the heroes uh, of the healthcare industry. And they have been through the equivalent, equivalent of a world war. And it's not go- we're in the middle of a triple-demic right now. It's not going away. So, yeah, these, these are heroic figures. Uh, and they, they deserve a lot more support than they're getting. Jonathan, right. we, we right. talked kind of cut in here on that. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just yeah. let me let me preface this here. Let sure. me, we, we talk about access to 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 health care and we talk about affordable health care. These are things that in those debates that you participated in post shows with me, we heard a lot from Republicans not necessarily wanting either because of costs. Well, costs and going back to what you know, what Colin said in terms of how do you you know control that in the marketplace, which is very difficult. And the demands too for the hospital industry too, right? I mean They've been pressed by the state as well uh, for, you know, ongoing concerns related to uh, what they have to pay out and certainly even what they may or may not contribute back to the communities um, tax wise and even in terms of payment in lieu of taxes. But I know one big thing that the Colin brought up and, and even um, Christine, you know, kind of started with is that, you know, training of nurses is a big issue. And we're fa- we're seeing this even, you know, with public universities here in Connecticut. This nursing shortage is a bigger issue than I think most people, you know, 
forget or realize. And and the thing is, is that, you know, the Connecticut Mirror did a tremendous article back in the summer. I was rereading it, as a matter of fact, that the nurses shortage really goes back to even teaching in the classroom. Um, you know, there is this interest, but we're also short. And we're seeing this even in a place like Southern. We're even short instructors in the classroom to teach you know, the students who are interested in being nurses. So you're seeing on both fronts in the classroom and certainly there in the, uh, uh, you know, healthcare arena. I want to talk a little bit more about inflation here. I don't know if we've really addressed it yet, but I talked about it at the top. One effort here is going to be a focus on income tax, as I understand it. Republican State Representative Holly Cheeseman, ranking member on the Finance, Bonding, and Revenue Committee. Really exciting stuff the way I'm delivering it here told the uh, Connecticut examiner that the committee was considering a proposal that would drop the income tax rate from 5 to 4% for anyone making less than 175,000 a year. Pretty routine proposal from Connecticut Republicans, Christine, but likely something we see this year. What do you think? Christine, are you muted or maybe you're not maybe we lost you. We hope we don't. We hope we didn't. Apparently, I cannot unmute myself. It's oh my God! Three, three years not, into the pandemic, you just, you just, and I can't you, figure out how to do this. You just broke um, the cardinal rule of uh, of where we're living. I guess we don't mute. I, I did this one time, and I got in trouble. We can't mute, <laughs> but but it's okay, okay if you do because you're okay. at the Capitol. So go ahead. Um, so um, I I think that we're going to see this. I mean, remember after um, after the election, uh, Governor Lamont said that he was looking at an income tax reduction for residents making. Between one hundred fifty thousand and two hundred thousand dollars a year, um, so I think that is probably going to be one of the things on the table. And I know that you know Republicans obviously propose this um, uh, on an, an annual basis, but I think that for some of the lower income brackets, um, there is going to be you know some possibility of of relief. Connecticut residents kind of expected the the tax relief after the governor touted significant cuts last year. Just talking specifically about the cap on mill rates for car taxes. Then there was the vehicle valuation. I think some people still had higher car tax bills as a result, and that's obviously inflation related or could be. How do you how do you think that's impacting the the outlook of the lawmakers on this session, Jonathan? It's a great question, Frankie. Uh, because yeah, this whole tax structure, or even you know, valuation, it's been quite a a nightmare, certainly on the property side, as you mentioned with cars. Uh, and even this whole reimbursement business going back and forth from, uh, you know, from municipalities coming from the state. Uh, but I don't think there's going to be a real solution to this issue. And even going back to this issue, what is going to be ultimately that, that percentage difference if that income consideration tax is going to be, uh, you know, revisited? Will it be 4%? Will it be 5% in terms of reduction? This is going to all have to be hashed out. And, and I wonder what the timeline will be for something like this. Will this take place before March? Will this be a last minute thing decided in June? I'm, I'm curious at, in terms of the, the timeline factor for some of these tax reforms or ideas. Any thoughts on that, Colin? Well, always bet on the last minute when you're talking about the General Assembly. Uh, <laughs> and that's kind of when things happen. I, I think you're also going to see a pretty significant surge uh, within the Democratic majority of both chambers to address a lot of the relief for the poorest citizens. You're going to see a lot of debate about uh, child care, uh, child rebates. You're going to see um, stuff about raising EITC. Uh, I think there's sort of a sense there in a lot of those kind of sub-caucuses that the relief needs to go to the desperately poor. Colin McEnroe, Jonathan, Jonathan, I, I just combined two people. I like when I do that. 
Jonathan Wharton and Christine Stewart joining us on Where We Live this morning. I, I want to ask you particularly on this. Last session, the state passed a historical policy to address the racial wealth gap. But as the Mirror reported, opposition from the governor's office derailed its launch. Christine, the baby bonds program, do you think that'll be revisited this year? This, this has been a, a, a very important topic that's got a lot of people up in arms, including about the way that people in the administration have been talking about it. Yeah, no, the administration did not look very um, flattering in that article. Um, I, I think that there are going to be a lot of questions, but it goes down to it's a it's a power struggle. It goes down to who has control over over the bond funds. And right now it's the governor has control over the, what bond funds are released and when they are released. And if the legislature can't um, pass legislation that says this funding has to be released and then possibly override a gubernatorial veto, um, I think the program is still in jeopardy. And it remains to be seen whether um, Eric Russell, the new state treasurer who will be sworn in today, will take up the mantle. I mean, you know, this this was um, Treasurer Wooden and he um, he is leaving. So, uh, you know, maybe Eric Russell will take this up as an issue and fight for this. And I think that there is public um, support for it, but I'm not quite sure how to get past that power struggle. Colin, a little background on the uh, baby bonds program, at least uh, as it was in Connecticut. This was, as Christine mentioned it, Sean Wooden's baby and uh, long-term investment in Connecticut families and communities, at least what they're promising. What are you seeing when we talk about this? Yeah, just so just to help people understand if they don't know, this would have um, it would create a kind of way of moving the T's uh, for the poorest children born in Connecticut. I think the most recent number was 3,200 uh, would be kind of escrowed for them at that time. Uh, and, and then matured at the time of adulthood. So you're actually trying to address the fact that an awful lot of people are kind of born into poverty and, and don't really have any way of even beginning to get out of it. Um, as programs go, it was a national leader. This is really being talked about a lot. Um, the mirror piece is terrific. <laughs> people should read it. It's like a spy novel uh, in some places. But um, but yeah, I mean, the, sort of reading between the lines of the mirror piece, it looks as though at least the administration is sort of saying that Wooden didn't really dot all the I's and cross all the T's. There's some real questions about whether uh, everything that's needed to be ready for impl implementation is there. And, and then he made things more complicated by kind of shocking everybody in April, announcing he wasn't going to run for re-election, which that's very late in the cycle to be doing that. It felt like a very sudden decision. So suddenly the shepherd was walking away from the sheep. Uh, and, and that's kind of never a good look or a good feeling. And yeah, I mean, as Christine pointed out, we actually we have three constitutional officers, new constitutional officers being, officers being sworn in today, including Eric Russell. And it'll be interesting to see what he does with all that, because the treasurer's job in this cycle is going to be very, very complicated for other reasons. Mira reporting this baby bronze program issue getting derailed largely because of political interference from the governor of Lamont's office leading a campaign of quiet but fierce opposition to the program from the time of its passage. Man, I, I, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm kind of knifing through things here, but i gotta, I got to move along. Uh, state of the State address now moved to 1 o'clock, Christine. Uh, we got that today. What do you, what do you expect uh, the governor to talk about? Well, I mean, I expect him to talk about what 
he has been talking about. I think that he will talk about what he felt his successes were in his first term um, and begin to lay the groundwork for where we're going to to be headed. Um, look, this is a budget year, so he doesn't give his budget address um, until February. So he has a two-year budget he'll, he'll propose in February. So this will be other, we'll see what his priorities are, um, you know, and it, it seems to be that, you know, lowering the the modest income tax cut for for families is one of them um and it's it remains to be seen he's been very vocal about this but he has been adamant that he wants a full out um assault weapons ban which we did not pass in 2013 we grandfathered in anyone who currently owned assault weapons yeah but, something like 80,000 um, 80,000 weapons might have been grandfathered in something like that yeah. And so he wants to ban all assault weapons. And I just don't know if he has enough political capital to do that. I just feel that that's um, impossible. So I guess we'll see today if he decides to decides to mention that. I mean, for his first two terms, I mean, he was unable to or his first term, he was unable to get um, tolls across. We do have the highway user fee, but he was unable to get tolls across. We weren't able because the pandemic pandemic kind of stopped it. His second year kind of the pandemic began and that was all the focus. Um, his relationship with the legislature, um, you know, it wasn't all that great. I mean, he was unable to get tolls passed. He didn't have enough, um, um, you know, political wherewithal to um, get that through a Democrat controlled legislature. So um, everything is still kind of new here. Um, so it, it should be interesting with all of his new staff also to see how he works with the legislature. I mean, Democrats have the majority, but where is he going to to draw the line on some of these things? A lot of pomp and circumstance today at the Capitol. But first, uh, we talked about the state of the state address being moved to one uh, after the inauguration, I guess, at the Capitol. Then you got the governor having a meeting with Pete Buttigieg, National Transportation Secretary on the Gold Star Bridge. Uh, in in New London, or at least in the New London area, uh, that's happening this afternoon. So he's got to squeeze that in between the Bacon Brothers tonight. Colin, do we pay for the Bacon Brothers? Do we pay for Kevin Bacon and his brother? Is that something that we pay for? Well, we may pay for them spiritually, but uh, we do not pay for them out of our pockets, out of our tax dollars. No. Um, so the, the 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 big party has been moved to the Bushnell. Kind of, try, I'm struggling to figure out how that works. I think they have to set up the Otterino Hall for dancing because, as we know, Ned Lamont has this kind of Elaine Bennis approach to dancing that we all really want to see. Um, With but, a tie-dyed uh, shirt on, though, not a right. suit. But look, four years ago is Joe Scarborough's band. I, the Bacon Brothers are such an upgrade from there. Uh, I couldn't be happier. And just and just really quickly, Mark Pazniokas at the CT Mirror, our good friend, he reports that committee meetings will be held in person. While public hearings will be hybrid. Uh, fan of the show, Kathy Flaherty, we care about her a lot. She says on Twitter she's going to opt out of appearing and providing testimony at the Capitol in person out of concern for COVID product protocols. You won't see the great Colin McEnroe in the chambers, uh, I guess, without a mask on. What can you offer to Kathy and and uh, and I guess as well as Colin, Christine, what can you offer to them? Yeah, so this is kind of the the first year since the pandemic started that the legislature's 
kind of been back in, in full swing and things have kind of returned um, to normal. I mean, public hearings will still be allowed to be hybrid. So anybody who does have a fear of, of COVID can, can stay home and can still offer their testimony. And my understanding is that lawmakers can also be hybrid for these public hearings. So there's a chance, I spoke with uh, Senate President Martin Looney last night, there's a chance that taxpayers will save a little bit of money on paying for those travel stipends for lawmakers to make their way to the state capitol. Deaths uh, due to COVID-19 up in recent weeks and obviously uh, hospitalizations. That's what I look at more because you can't trust the infection numbers with the way the tests are. But I'd imagine they are up uh, just anecdotally. Colin, Christine, Jonathan, stay with us. We'll keep previewing the state legislative session kicking off today. What are you hoping to see handled if you're listening to us? You can join the conversation, Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Dacious, and this is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Frankie Graziano. Connecticut lawmakers taking their seats, many for the first time, kicking off the long legislative session that lasts through June. Back with us to discuss top priorities and their predictions, the great Colin McEnroe, Christine Stewart, and Jonathan Wharton. You can join the conversation if you want, 888-720-9677. I know that wasn't really necessarily a a strong invitation, but yeah, call us, 888-720-WNPR. Just to set up uh, the folks that are joining us here on the call, the basic outline of the balance of power in Connecticut, uh, at least in terms of the, legis- the the Connecticut General Assembly, I believe 24 Democrats in the Senate, 12 Republicans, 98 Dems in the House, 53 Republicans. Hey, Colin, I haven't talked to you really about this uh, professionally since election night. Are you surprised at all about this makeup? I guess I want to I want to hammer in maybe more on on what was going on with Republicans losing seats, particularly in Greenwich, maybe maybe the maybe the red wave not necessarily making it to Connecticut, I guess. 
Right, and we should say actually the numbers are already down to one uh, legislator is uh, taking a judgeship and now uh, Ed Vargas, it's just been announced is going to, I think Central Connecticut State University and a distinguished uh, lecturing chair or something along those lines. So we've already got special elections on the horizon here. But yeah, I mean, I, I think there's sort of two tendencies that were really obvious uh, in November. Uh, one of them is that Fairfield County is increasingly blue. I mean, I mean, Greenwich just went bat poop crazy, right? It's, you almost can't use them as a way of extrapolating towards anything else. But it just seems overall Fairfield County is turning more blue. I think also the kind of the leafy suburbs everywhere, particularly women voters electing women in leafy suburbs was a big trend. I think it really helped put uh, Johanna Hayes over the, over the top, uh, just the enthusiasm generated in some of these suburban races. Uh, I'm thinking like a, a Melissa Osborne in Simsbury, for example. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as legislation or as legislative power. Do coalitions form around that kind of stuff? You can sort of see, for example, uh, a bunch of legislators really getting together to take uh, that uh, child tax credit um, more seriously and push harder for it. And also, interestingly, Sean Scanlon, a legislator, has rotated into the controller's office uh, and he's going to bring his own attitudes from his time as a legislator into that job. And that's another issue that he seems to care about. Now to the preppy one, Jonathan Wharton, the professor of political science at Southern Connecticut State University. Nationally, a highly publicized rift we're seeing right now play out between conservatives and far-right Republicans. Zoom out if you can for us, Jonathan. How do you think the average Republican interprets what's happening in this sort of I guess, unwillingness of certain Republicans to get behind Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the U.S. House. It's been a long saga, long before even yesterday, internally within the Republican conference, as they like to call themselves in the House of Representatives, um, because there have been factions just it's been an issue going on for years. And so there's been this animosity to begin with against Ken McCarthy, even among Republicans before this all came along. Unfortunately, he was not able to close ranks. Uh, before yesterday. And of course, things have kind of splintered. And to make matters only worse, of course, this delays the entire process of the business of the House of Representatives. So um, I, I don't know what's going to take place this week. I've certainly been following it purely because, Frankie, I was a former House of Representative staffer. Uh, and so I'm just more curious institutionally in terms of what does this mean for our Congress and how they're going to operate, not even so much this week, this month, this legislative session. Yeah. And how does that trickle into to Connecticut in any way? I mean, you, you see it sometimes in the outposts. I think what was unique and, and Colin kind of got into this was that we were seeing, as Colin said it, thank you for getting this in, my man. He said, bat poop crazy. I, I think it's more I think it's more unique when you have that happen in, in a place like Greenwich than when you do in Killingly, I guess. I don't know. Tell me if I'm wrong. Well, the thing is that we have to keep in mind in Connecticut is that, especially in, in Fairfield County, going back to what you mentioned with Colin, is that it's not so much that we're seeing more people becoming Democrats, it's just that more people are being unaffiliated voters and they're voting for Democrats. So that's the bigger issue is how do you grow out the membership base of either party when it's not really occurring and we're having so many new transplants coming from New York, let alone other places. And that's not really on the horizon, at least for both parties, which I find kind of intriguing. I mean, there's some discussion doing some reforms, but it's not really going anywhere. All right. Join me, if you will, on on a journey here as I try to make once again another attempt at taking a call on where we live. We have Dan from Glastonbury joining us on the line. Dan from Glastonbury is going to talk to us about right to die legislation. Dan, are you there? 
Yeah, I am. Thank here, God. Dan, a, go ahead. Give us your comment. Okay. I'm a huge proponent of right to die legislation, and I just wanted to hear from the panel uh, as we've been knocking on the door for the last few years of getting that into Connecticut. And I just wanted to hear from the panel what they think the chances are this year of that legislation finally passing. I'll, I'll hang up and uh, listen to you folks off the air. Thank, Thank you, you, Dan. Go ahead, Christine. Um, yeah, so aid in dying legislation, I mean, this would be possibly the, I think it's, I don't know, it's been more than 10 years, maybe, maybe the, you know, the the 13th year that uh, this has been introduced. It was able to make some headway last year and that it got through the public health committee, but it did not get through the judiciary committee. Um, and so it failed. So um, Senator Gary Winfield, who's the um, chair of the Judiciary Committee, um, does support it. Um, and, you know, so but the makeup of the committees, both the Public Health Committee and the Judiciary Committee this year and the makeup of, you know, the legislature is different. And because this is an issue that doesn't fall along party lines, it's very difficult to be able to determine whether um, this is something that could pass every year. You actually have to talk to every lawmaker who is who is on that committee. And it was Representative Jonathan Steinberg, who is the main proponent of the legislation, and he is no longer the chair of the public health committee. So, um, you know, it remains to be seen. And, um, you know, even, uh, even Governor Lamont has been a hard person to pin down on this issue. Colin. You know, I mean, Dan, you'd be surprised too, because I'm so old that I remember when, Connecticut couldn't pass basic living will or advanced directive legislation. And that went on for many, many years. The Catholic Church, which was more politically powerful, this is the late 70s, early 80s, they would beat the thing down every single year. This is just that basic document that pretty much everybody has now, hopefully, that says, you know, whether they want heroic measures under certain circumstances, stuff like that. So aid in dying, you know, is kind of the next level. And I don't know, I went over the OLR report on last session's bill last night. You know, it's a pretty good bill. I mean, it deals with the things that you want to worry about. You want a circuit breaker so that somebody who's depressed or confused or they've just gotten a really bad diagnosis, they might have three years left to live, but they don't understand that. They're just so miserable that they want to pull the trigger too fast. So you want the circuit breaker for that so that you can get them into counseling if family members are concerned in that way. And you want to make sure doctors don't have to do this uh, if they don't want to do it. Uh, and But I mean, I think we need this. I think we need it soon. You know, you don't want your grandmother out there trying to get some fentanyl or something. You know, I mean, it's an incredibly dangerous situation on a whole bunch of different levels. Just a compelling, so, just a compelling issue. Every time you go to the Capitol and talk to people about it, there's always a, a really compelling story that you'll hear from folks. Uh, Joanne from New Milford is totally unrelated topic. I'm, I'm kind of going around here today, but around the horn, if you will. It is the opening of the session. I guess you got to talk about a variety of things. Joanne says, I'm a retired teacher. What's the state of the pension fund? Has it made any progress in resolving its pension problems? Jonathan, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to you on, on teachers. Uh, you have any thoughts on Joanne's question? Oh, I've been trying to follow this for a while, especially <laughs> in the last year or so, because you know some of the money has been paid down, but still not enough. And I think that's the big concern if we're going to have any kind of tax cuts. Uh, even the Democrats are saying this over and over again. I, I heard Duff uh, saying this actually the other day, that this has got to be addressed. Uh, you know, when it comes to, to the debts that are owed. 
Um, you know, I don't see any real progress with it yet, and I don't know what the game plan is for the future, but it's got to be tackled, especially if you're going to be dealing with the income tax. And, so that's and, the and, and we're talking about health care shortages and issues facing nurses. What about uh, help for teachers? You recently wrote a piece about this. What can you tell us, Jonathan, about, about Yeah, no, this is a significant issue. Again, similar to the nurses, we're going to see this shortage, and we're already experiencing it in Connecticut, but just as a region in New England where, you know, we're talking about, uh, from what I remember, somewhere between twelve to 1,500 um, teachers is a shortage. It'll probably grow even more in the next five years. And so there's got to be a big recruitment uh, effort. And we can't forget that, you know, the silver tsunami is not quite ended of so many people who are tiring out. So this is education in the classroom and, and a retention, even more, most important. It's going to be something that's not going away for a while here in Connecticut. And it's a Jonathan... Wharton Block here. I just want to ask you now about the topic of housing and desegregation. Oh, thank goodness! In Connecticut, get your get, get on your horse. Get out on the on the. Uh, you're you're at school. You're not on the shoreline here. You're not able to go outside. But uh, I just want to I, I want to talk about it this way. Sean Geo with the Partnership for Strong Communities tweets. Majority Leader Jason Rojas says housing must be a priority this session. Senator Murphy tweeting the same. One in eight CT households spend more than half their income on housing. Our state can't thrive without affordable homes, says Sean Geo. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, it's no secret. Connecticut's got one of the highest costs associated housing, right? And that's not just even for renting or even owning, but just even maintaining. I mean, look what's going on with the energy issues that are now surrounded with. And I think from what I remember, the data somewhere that were like top three or five most expensive in the nation. So this is not a surprising issue. The bigger issue is going to be what do we do about not even so much affordable housing, but even something like a vocational housing. And what do we do to keep people even here in Connecticut because of the cost of housing? I mean, this is a very nuanced and complex issue. And, you know, I wonder how and when this issue will be tackled in our General Assembly, because the issue is not going away in terms of what the state can and can't do when it deals with housing costs. And um, it's I wonder what the strategies will be in terms of, of tackling this legislatively coming from the state and what local governments could do or can't do when it comes to zoning issues, for example. Yeah, Colin, what's going to stop here? Do you think there's any energy here to overturn what the Woodbridges and the Westports are doing here on, on, on affordable housing? I think there's a lot of energy. It's a, it's a tough issue. Uh, it's a tough issue for all of those reasons. And mostly what you can do at the state level is create incentives. But you've also got towns that will turn away state money rather than take the incentive money and do development that affects their demographics in a way that they find uh, unappetizing. But I think there's a lot of interest even in ideas like rent control. Uh, um, obviously, the homelessness situation is part of this. Uh, I thought David Fink's piece in The Current this uh, past Sunday was very eloquent about all this. And, you know, the argument that he makes is also kind of an economic one, which is if, you, if you're paying a third or a half of your income on rent or on mortgage payments, your purchasing power goes down. You don't buy stuff. The state sales tax doesn't get to collect that money. Uh, and, and in fact, it kind of affects the entire economic picture. So there are moral reasons to have an equitable housing system with more opportunities, but there are also some pretty good financial ones. I want to just briefly, with if I can with you, Christine, energy costs. I mean, we're talking about potentially $80 a month for, for most of us that live in Connecticut that are either UI or Eversource customers. Anything that could be, we, there was the special session, but anything that could be done this session here, you think? 
You know, I think that they're going to look at it, but I think that people have a fundamental misunderstanding of what the public utility regulatory um, authority's job is. Mm-hmm. They um, Their job is to make sure that when um, these utilities go out to bid um, for this power, that they are um, getting a, a competitive price. And that competitive price might not always be... Um, a good price for for us the consumers um and so it's kind of a kind of a sticky issue here i mean pura does have a lot more power to to regulate the the utilities but we have a deregulated system and so you know i have to wonder whether um lawmakers are are upset with themselves that they they did deregulate this system you know um more than two two decades ago and 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 look at you know whether they they should um re-regulate this and i'm not done with you on the environment christine if you can hear humor me here the impending waste crisis as it's been described by connecticut officials yeah get ready for this one is likely to be on the table Lori brown executive director of the connecticut league of conservation conservation voters told the Connecticut Examiner her organization's biggest priority was around figuring out what to do with the state's garbage now that the Mira trash plant was decommissioning. And the new chair of the Environment Committee, Democratic State Senator Rick Lopez, agreed, noting that 800,000 tons of trash being shipped out of the state each year because there are no landfills or trash to energy plants in the state to send it to. What's going to be done about the waste crisis, Christine? Anything? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, what happens when uh, these states like Pennsylvania, um, West Virginia say, no, I don't want Connecticut's trash. I mean, the ship has kind of sailed on this or, you know, uh, the backup plan to keep the the mirror plant running. They decided not to keep the trash energy plant running. And they said, uh, creative destruction. We're just going to, you know, figure out um, how to manage this on our own um, without a plan. So they allowed the plant to close. I think it was it was this summer they allowed the plant to close w- without a plan in place for what we're going to do. And the plan right now is to continue to transport Connecticut's waste um, out of state. And, you know, there is a possibility at any point that the states, the other states that we're shipping our trash to could say, you know, we don't want your trash, Connecticut. They don't want so Connecticut's it's, it's trash. A, right. It's a very, it's a very, um, the land of stinky habits is what we might us. turn into the <laughs> land of stinky habits. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Christine, for, for answering that question. I got, uh, we got to, we got to finish up here, but really quickly, maybe in 30 seconds or less, I'm going to put Colin McEnroe and Jonathan Wharton both on the spot. Colin quickly, who's going to be the next mayor of Hartford if you had to guess on January 4th of 2023 as municipal elections are this year who's going to be the next mayor of Hartford and then Jonathan who's going to be the mayor of New Haven so so really quickly uh, we don't know all the candidates yet and one thing that may affect everything that we just talked about is the John von Farah who's the chair of finance revenue and bonding I think Christine um, is rumored to be thinking very strongly about running for mayor. Uh, I think you'll also see Arun and Aralampalam get in very soon. Eric Coleman's already in. Uh, Mr. LeBron is already in. Uh, he's kind of a friend of mine. So, But I think Arun and Aralampalam has done the most work to lay the groundwork for a race. He's a hard worker. He's really smart. If I had to bet, I would bet on Jonathan, him. New Haven. Go ahead. 
Well, you know, I think it's just going to be very interesting what could happen in New Haven, but I'm expecting that to be a couple of candidates anyway. There's already some talk of it. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe we get another three or four like the last time. You know how it is. There's never any saga in New Haven because it happens every two years. And we always know that the turnout never really goes beyond 25 percent. So uh, just assume some competition against Justin Elker. I think that's going to be expected. Thanks to the illustrious Colin McEnroe, to Christine Stewart, editor-in-chief of Connecticut or CT News Junkie. And you got to listen to Colin's show. That's at 1 o'clock on Connecticut Public Radio. Thank you to Christine Stewart, editor-in-chief of CT News Junkie, and to my friend Jonathan Wharton, professor of political science at Southern Connecticut State University. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. Appreciate it. After the break, the local American Civil Liberties Union chapter shares their to-do list for the 2023 legislative session. Stay tuned. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. Six in ten Connecticut voters supported early voting on Election Day. It means that there will be at least one day of in-person voting in a future election in Connecticut. But here comes the fun part. It still has to be implemented. And one of the biggest items on the legislative agenda this session will be a bill to implement early voting. Claudine Constant and the Connecticut chapter of the ACLU canvass local residents about early voting ahead of the big vote. Claudine joins us now. She's the ACLU of Connecticut's public policy and advocacy director. Hello over Zoom, Claudine. Hi, Frankie. How are you doing? So good to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing okay. You know, busy, busy day. <laughs> busy, busy. And you were out there trying to work, uh, work, work the streets and talk to people about early voting. This something voted on in, in November. Were, were you surprised to see it pass? I was relieved to see it pass. Um, you know, this is the second time uh, that the early voting ballot initiative uh, came before Connecticut voters um, in Connecticut. And it failed the first time, particularly, I think, because the language was kind of wonky. Uh, but this time they cleared up the language on the ballot. People understood what we were asking of them uh, and it, it passed. So it was a great relief. I said that Claudine was on Zoom. She's actually on the phone. And I am if you, on the phone. She is on the phone. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you want to talk to us about voter access issues, something that Claudine's very passionate about. I'm also passionate about talking about it here on Where We Live. Call us 888-720-9677. In advance of the interview, the ACLU of Connecticut actually gave us a list of quotes they got from people as they went around the state talking to people. One person said, quote, I wouldn't have to take off work just to stand in line. What were some of the issues posed to you by the local voters you talked with, Claudine? That was probably one of the biggest ones, right, is that voting, while voting is considered a fundamental democratic right here in the United States, we haven't really taken the true steps to take into account what it means to be a person that's working and living in Connecticut. Um, and particularly when you think about systemic oppression and systemic racism, there are some folks in Connecticut that are having to work one, two, three jobs to be able to make ends meet, that have to deal with various childcare issues, um, that have to deal with a lot of independent factors that kind of stop them from being able to participate uh, in this right. So uh, work was one of the biggest ones and childcare was one of the other ones and also waiting in really, really long lines. 
whenever it gets through officially and it's through the legislature, can you just kind of explain how central this move is to stemming racial inequities you were talking about just a second ago when it comes to voting access? Yeah, so um, right now Connecticut is one in four states that does not allow for early voting, in-person early voting in the entire country, right? Um, And for a lot of the reasons I discussed earlier, that's why it's so important for us to be able to implement a true and meaningful early voting process, right? And true and meaningful, we mean inclusive, expansive, and accessible for every voter in Connecticut. We don't want to see something that kind of just repeats or recreates the same systemic barriers um, that currently exist without any early voting in Connecticut. So for us, we're hoping to see at least the bare minimum of 14 days that's inclusive of weekends and nights for people to be able to vote. 14 days. How many? So you're so you're so you're talking about 14 days. And I, I want to get into specifics in a second, but I did this exercise with you for those of uh, the folks that may not listen to the uh, news broadcast that we do here on Connecticut Public. But we had spoken earlier in the in the year, uh, excuse me, late in 2022 to Stephanie Thomas and Dominic Rapini, who were running against each other for secretary of the state. Stephanie Thomas now is the secretary of the state in Connecticut but the, the, the argument there from, from Republicans was that spending too much money if you're doing too many days of early voting. Dominic Rapini was talking about potentially there being 30 days of early voting, something like that. You're saying two weeks here. And, 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 and how important would it be to maybe have some of those days take place during the weekend? I mean, again, it kind of goes back to really addressing the barriers that stop people from being able to engage in voting, which is long lines and work. Uh, And so people being able to vote on the weekends can kind of, one, dissipate the amount of people that show up on one singular day to be able to cast their vote, but can also be, um, it also creates this awareness of people that maybe don't necessarily work a nine to five schedule, but work hourly wage jobs and their schedules are unpredictable. Uh, so being able to have some time on the weekend to go and vote um, can really help alleviate some of those issues. Claudine is somebody who will regularly testify uh, in front of lawmakers at the Connecticut General Assembly. And I understand, at least from what the ACLU of Connecticut would like to see, that there would be an effort to codify the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Am I correct in that? Absolutely. And can you explain what you'd like to see there? Uh, so really, um, we because Connecticut has honestly been so abysmal when it comes to progressive voting, right, voting rights acts in our state, this process of codifying the National Voting Rights Act would kind of just continue to prop Connecticut up as a leader in expansive and equitable voting rights. Um, So there has been a long history of Connecticut creating barriers or being too slow to remove barriers that have been happening nationally um, to create um, opportunities for everybody to be able to vote. I I think there was an effort last year which only made it through the Government Administration and Elections Committee last year aiming to codify parts of the Federal Voting Rights Act of 1965. Can you just help us understand what happened last year that maybe can be corrected this year to get the bill through? Um, A couple of things, right? So one, last year was a short session. 
Uh, and there's always a very, very crowded space when it comes to priorities happening across the state. And sometimes things just don't have time to make it up onto either of the chamber floors. The other thing is that we really um, want to be able to get our ducks in a row when it comes to being able to adequately fund and make sure that we have the resources in place to uh, to equitably enact this Voting Rights Act. So we've taken some steps to kind of address that issue and it's looking pretty good so far, but you never know. It's a very unpredictable space. Voting rights and the Connecticut Civil Rights Act that you'd like to see go through protecting Connecticut residents, perhaps from a recent U.S. Supreme Court decision advocate advocates saw as an attack on the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1871. In just in about a minute, can you tell us how important it is to, to have this federal act, which I understand allows people to sue when they feel like their their rights are being disenfranchised? Yes. So right now, Connecticut doesn't uh, Connecticut law doesn't allow for people to access justice through the courts for civil rights violations from police misconduct, including things like interfering with speech and protest rights. State law around the right to sue government actors also frequently does not include attorney's fees, so victims who are less likely to recover large awards are also less likely to find lawyers to take their cases on a contingency, contingency fee basis. So what we're really looking to do is kind of close that gap between when a person's rights are violated and the opportunity to sue uh, in court. Busy, busy indeed is Claudine Constant, so I appreciate so much you coming on to talk to us. Thank you to Megan as well for helping us out, Megan Holden, as well at the ACLU. Thank you so much for coming on, Claudine. Thank you for having me, Frankie. I'm Frankie Graziano. Today's show, produced by Katie Pellico. Thank you so much, Katie, for your hard work. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Also, Katie Tolarski and Tess Terrible helping us out today. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app, And thank you for listening. This is where we live. You're listening because you stand with the family.